0: From God, our Father, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're continuing our story through the book of Genesis this morning, but we don't have much left. Our story of Genesis is coming to a close, and all the loose ends are starting to tie up neatly. Last week, we finally resolved all the drama of Joseph and his brothers who had sold him into slavery. The brothers learned that Joseph was alive, and they were dismayed at his presence. But Joseph forgave his betrayers, and they hugged it out. The brothers are reconciled. There's food to go around during this time of famine. And and as we heard today in our reading, Jacob, also known as Israel... Is making his way to go and see this reunion, to be a part of this reunion and see his long-lost son. Uh, Everything is wrapping up nicely, except for one little detail. They're not in the promised land. In fact, Jacob and his family are actually leaving the promised land. Uh, Jacob had settled in the land of Canaan, the land promised to them by God in chapter 37 of Genesis. But Joseph has invited now his family to, to ride out this famine in Egypt. And Jacob can't turn down an opportunity to see his lost, long, long-lost son. But he's leaving the promised land. And this fact is not lost on Jacob. In fact, he's actually pretty worried about it. This isn't the way things are supposed to go, he thinks. I remember. I remember what God spoke to me at beth Ail, how he had said to me, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And better yet, I remember what my dad told to me, what Isaac had said, how God came to him and said, do not go down. To Egypt, you shall dwell in the land that I will show you. And God showed me this land. So this isn't how things are supposed to go. This, this isn't right. Jacob is worried. He's worried about where things are heading. He's worried about the country that he's going to be living in. And his fears really aren't unfounded, because he's going down to Egypt. Egypt in the Old Testament is emblematic of basically all the things that the people of God are not supposed to be. Egypt is a pagan land, where people don't bow down to Yahweh, the one true God, but instead worship all sorts of created things. It's a a pagan land where, as the book of Exodus shows us, human life is not valued. Young children are going to be murdered on a massive scale. It's a pagan land that is unsympathetic to immigrants, and Jacob's about to become one. You could understand why well, he would be a little bit concerned. He's going down to Egypt. What about our land? Where is our country headed? It seems like for a while now, America has been going down to Egypt in God we trust no longer seems to really apply. And if it does, there's really no consensus about what God we're even talking about. The number of Christians over the last several decades has steadily declined. While our nation has seen the rise of the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation at all, that's steadily increased over the last several decades. Christians are becoming foreigners in this land. This land where people bow down to their phones, to look at their phones, so often that researchers are actually seeing bone spurs develop in the necks of people. This land that doesn't seem to value human life, where people are devalued based on the color of their skin, or their country of origin instead of as equal creatures made in the image of God. It seems like the evidence is all there. We're going down to Egypt. and Maybe, like Jacob, this downhill trajectory has you a bit concerned. Look what God says to Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, I am God. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you, and I will also bring you up again. God is not abandoning Jacob. God is going with Jacob. And Jacob going down to Egypt isn't going to get in the way of God's plan. It's not going to slow his plan down. In fact, it's precisely there in the land of Egypt, in this land of oncoming persecution and opposition where God has chosen to fulfill his promises. That's the way that God works. God continually shows his fulfillment of promises when the chips are down. When the situation looks dire, that's when God's right in his element. Consider Jesus. All the odds were stacked against him. Nearly killed by Herod at the time of his birth. Living as a foreigner in a land unsympathetic to foreigners, the Roman Empire, known for putting their foot down on religious uprisings. And even his own people came after him, the Jews. They were constantly looking for ways to trap him. Jesus predicted it in our gospel reading. He said that he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and be killed. And yet it's that very death, that cross which brings salvation. God fulfilling His promises in the face of persecution when the chips are down. Consider the disciples, Jesus' followers. They pick up Jesus' ministry in that same Roman Empire under rulers like Diocletian, Nero, who burned and killed Christians, constantly persecuted Christians, and tradition holds that each one of the disciples, except for John, was martyred for their faith, and yet as the saying goes, the blood of the martyrs watered the seed of the church, and the church grew and grew. The, the early church exploded in the face of this oppression and opposition, when the odds were stacked against it, because that's how God works. That's God's sweet spot. And so when Jacob goes down to Egypt, he has nothing to fear, and God tells him so. And Jacob has come a long way now in the story of Genesis, long enough to trust God's word of promise to him. And so he goes down to Egypt, and he lives, and he dies. But before he dies, he speaks this word of faith to his son, Joseph. He says, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's. Carry me out of Egypt. Jacob, on his deathbed, his, his eyes failing him physically, and knowing that he will not see the fulfillment of God's promises with his own eyes, he knows that God will keep his promise. He knows that he's not a citizen of Egypt, but that he's a citizen of God's kingdom. And he believes that God will lead his people back to the promised land. And he entrusts his very bones to that promise. Dear friends, as followers of Jesus, we are becoming foreigners in this land. But we've always been foreigners. Like Jacob, our citizenship is in God's kingdom. And the coming of God's kingdom cannot be stopped. Jesus inaugurated it, His death and His resurrection, and God will continue to redeem and restore all things. God's plan of restoration will not be wavered by a wavering nation. His faithfulness is not dependent upon the faithfulness of our nation. And even though things may be getting worse, even though things may be going downhill, or maybe it feels like the cards are stacked against God and His people, that only strengthens God's corner. God will continue to flex His muscles in the face of opposition. And God will continue to use His people... In that plan of redemption. You know, I think God is using these times to to shake us up and wake us up to rejoin Him on His redemptive plan for this world in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our schools. How do we begin to join Jesus on His mission? Be a foreigner, look different. Act differently than this world. I think the Apostle Paul summed it up pretty well in our epistle. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have some cert, uh, students in our midst today, and we're going to recognize a few students in our midst. They're going to stand up here at the end of our service and be commissioned. They're going to be set apart in a house that is set apart from the rest of the houses on this college campus. It's our student house. And if you're not familiar with it, there's a booth in the back you can check out after worship. It's a place that looks different. And not just because Marcus spruced it up all summer. (laughs) No, this, this place looks different because the students living in it have been made different by a God who latched himself onto them in their baptisms. A God who said, I will go down with you, or maybe up with you, to Houghton, to use you for the sake of my kingdom. To draw others to this house, this haven, a place where they can be welcomed and loved. A place where they can hear of my promises and know the peace that you have because of the hope that I have given you. A college campus. A place where, more often than not, our faith is challenged, and yet God is there and using these students as a part of his plan. What's your sphere of influence? Where has God placed you as a beacon of hope? You are a haven. You have these same promises that God has made to you. You carry that peace with you. God himself is with you, and he continues to work. He's been at it for a few thousand years, and the gospel keeps spreading. Christianity may be in decline in our country, but that it made it here at all is nothing short of a miracle. All the odds were against God and his people, and yet God prevailed. I'll leave you just one final proof of this. In the second century, there lived a Roman historian named Tacitus. By modern scholars, he's considered to be one of the greatest Roman historians of all time. And Tacitus lived in a time when Christianity was a small outfit, small people. Tacitus called Christians, called the Christian faith, a pernicious superstition. And look how far it's come today. But there was another second century writer. His name is unknown, and the work that he wrote wasn't discovered until the 13th century. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. Diognetus was an unbeliever in the second century who received this letter describing to him who Christians were and what Christians were about. I'm going to read a little bit of this letter to you. It says, While Christians live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress, and food, and other aspects of life. At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children but they do not abandon their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul is dispersed throughout all members of the body and Christians throughout all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, but is not of the body. Likewise, Christians dwell in the world but are not of the world. That is the community that you belong to. And the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is your God. The same God who preserved his people in the land of Egypt and in the land of Babylon and in the Roman Empire and in America and to the ends of the earth. That same God has brought you into his kingdom through Jesus' death and resurrection. You live where your lot has been cast, but Jesus goes with you. I myself will go down with you, and I will bring you up again. We're foreigners in a foreign land. Our pilgrimage has begun Let us walk in the way described to Diognetus. Let us walk in the, the guidance of the words of Paul. Let us walk with the faith of Jacob. And let us always walk in the footsteps of Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.